The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at www.upc.org forward slash university. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 47th and 16th in Seattle's U District. Well, thank you again for being here tonight. My name is Ryan Church. I'm the Senior Director of University Ministries here at UPC. And if you are here for the very first time tonight, I want to invite you to tune me out here for about the next uh, minute or so because, and you can, you can turn to somebody and ask, but I'm going, uh, we have a little bit of housekeeping that we need to take care of. And it's the first time this year that I have talked about, uh, about money, but that's what I want to do really quick before we get started. Uh, if, you, if you've been coming here, if you've been showing up, one of the things that you've heard is that you are part uh, of a 102-year-old tradition by showing up at the inn uh, here tonight. That uh, University of Presbyterian Church started as a college Bible study over 100 years ago. And, in, and so in meeting like this on a Tuesday, it's a legacy that we carry on. God's been doing something really cool for a really long time in this neighborhood. And it is a church that absolutely loves college students that says, uh, we take uh, Jesus' words very seriously that we want to love our neighbors and our closest neighbors are college students. And so uh, the way that I like to talk about this is that uh, if the congregation is like mom and dad, mom and dad have picked up our dinner. They have covered the tab, but our responsibility here as uh, students is to pick up the tip. And so for the first time this year, I'm asking your help in picking up the tip. The church is going to take care of the tab. But uh, if this is your community, if this is a place that, that uh, to some degree you may call it your church, it's your fellowship, I want to invite you to consider giving uh, to university ministries uh, as we seek to keep uh, what God is, is doing in this neighborhood, uh, to seek to be faithful to that. Uh, in addition, we're doing this thing called the Apple Cup Challenge. Some of you may know that there is also an in at Washington State University. Okay, we'll call it Wazoo because, you know, when you go there, you think of things like Wazoos, whatever that may be. So, what I want to say is we are in a bit of a fundraising competition with the Inn at Wazoo. And what I want, what I want us to do, uh, scripture says, blessed are those who are persecuted. I would love to persecute the Cougs. And to do it really, really well. Let's, let's bless them by persecuting them. And the way that you can do that is we have this little competition that if we, if we don't win this Apple Cup challenge, then I have to get up and preach wearing crimson and gray. And I, I really, 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 really do not want to do that. So we're asking your help in joining the Apple Cup challenge this year. Uh, last year, this is brutal. Check this out. This Coog comes in and says, look, I want to make sure the Cougs win. And he said, I know the dogs are going to raise a lot of money, but whatever they raise, I want to match it and throw on enough for us to win. Well, per what happened in the football game, he matched it and then threw an extra $3 on there just because the Cougs won by three last year. So we have some work to do. Uh, the giving box is here every week. I invite you to contribute to the giving box 
as you, uh, as you see led. So thank you for that piece of housekeeping. Now, if you are here for the first time, you can tune me back in. But I don't want you to think, oh, see, every time I go to church, they talk about money. Uh, no, this is the first time we've talked about it this year. What we want to do from here is continue the series that we've been looking at this fall on faith and doubt. We've been looking throughout fall quarter at how actively engaging our doubts might not lead us to greater certainty, but it will likely lead us to greater faith. And faith is exactly what scripture calls us to. Faith that helps us grow in commitment, love, and risk in relationship to Jesus Christ. So where we've been from here is, is we started the quarter by looking at some great cases of old, what we might call Old Testament doubters, where we saw real doubt from some of our heroes of the faith. And then last week, we had an opportunity to practice as a community engaging our doubts in a spirit of prayer. We jumped in this together, this image that Janie uh, showed us in the video of, of not trying to dodge the raindrops, but actually engaging our doubts and, and immersing our whole selves into that. And we did that through, uh, through worship and song, through prayer, through art last week that you can check out this week. And we put words to some of the doubts that, that are present uh, in this community. It was a practice in actively engaging what our, our doubts uh, really are. So we're going to continue what we've been doing uh, through the Old Testament at the start of this quarter, but now we're going to jump into the New Testament. Every week here at the end, we come to the scriptures. We come to the Bible because we believe that that the things that those that have gone before us have learned, we believe that God is still teaching us and guiding us through those same words that we hear in scriptures. So whether you are exploring the faith for the first time or whether this is an ongoing journey for you, we come to the text every week believing that it will speak to us. So uh, let's continue on that journey as we look at the New Testament stories uh, as we start tonight. And the place that we're going to start is we've, we've made this, this case that when we actively engage doubt, we used a Frederick Beekner quote we, where we said that doubt can function as the ants in the pants of faith. It is that thing that, that kind of keeps us moving and seeking and, and, and charging after God. But tonight what we want to do is, is look at the flip side, look at perhaps the, the context of what most of us think of when we think of doubt. Think of, of something that needs to be avoided. Uh, we need to think of the warning that's there when we hear about doubt. And so tonight we come to ask the question, what happens when doubt goes bad? Uh, in a book that, that uh, John Ortberg wrote uh, titled Faith and Doubt, where he takes much of the same perspective that we've been talking about, uh, where, where he seeks to explore how doubt can be used uh, to grow in greater faith, he puts words to this great warning. And, and I want to, uh, to ha- share this as we lean into our text tonight. Ortberg says this. He admits, doubt can go bad. Doubt can curdle like spoiled milk. Doubt can seep from the mind into the will and block courage and devotion. It can damage our capacity to persevere. It can make us indecisive. It can erode confidence. 
Let me pray for us as we come to this tonight. Lord, we pray that you would help us engage, that as we come to the to looking at the downside of doubt, at the warnings, that, that you would give us a vision uh, for how we might continue to be active instead of passive as we engage our doubts. Lord, uh, wake us up. Uh, to what your spirit is up to uh, among us. And Lord, we pray that you would use uh, the scriptures that we look at tonight to do just that. Uh, So Lord, by your spirit, energize us, keep us awake, that we may hear what you're up to. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So here's where we're headed tonight. I want to give you one image from scripture in three profiles uh, before we come to the communion table tonight, I've uh, asked a friend of mine, a woman named Jenny Spore. We were uh, classmates uh, here uh, back in the, in the mid-90s. She's going to come and lead us to the communion table. It's kind of fun because Jenny has a daughter that's about two weeks older than my son. And uh, we share a nanny. And so little Sienna, who is, is just adorable, gets to hang out with with uh, my rough-and-tumble little guy uh, at least once a week. And we joked about, you know, kind of an arranged marriage there. So I'm excited. Uh, I'm excited for you to get to meet Jenny. She's going to lead us into communion following our talk tonight, and then uh, our band will be up to lead us in some more, uh, some more worship songs. Uh, so, but where I want to go tonight is one image and three profiles. Are you ready? Here we go. Uh, the first image, and the image that I want to... Uh, to show us that I think sh- uh, shows what happens when doubt goes bad, when doubt becomes passive rather than active, is a story from Acts chapter 20, and it begins at the seventh verse. And it just it, it says this. We, we meet this young man, and, and I'll un- unpackage it, but it says this. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. So we have this man that we know is the Apostle Paul as we come into the New Testament. And we have this image of Paul, perhaps, I don't, I don't think it was exactly like this, but if it helps you, uh, say it would be like, like if the Apostle Paul got up to speak around 9.30 as I did, and he's preaching on and on and on until midnight, until this person that had shown up falls asleep and falls out of a window. Now, to the degree that you would imagine me being up here for at least another two and a half hours preaching to you and going, hey, I would fall asleep too. Uh, we, we need to remember that this was the Apostle Paul that was preaching, not me. could understand Eutyches falling asleep if it was me preaching on and on and on. But this, this is Paul. 
This is the guy that was the catalyst for sending out a message that was taking the ancient world by storm. This message that had started in Jerusalem, had expanded under Judea and Samaria, and had gone throughout uh, the Greco-Roman world at this point. This was an exciting, exciting message. And the text doesn't tell us that anybody else fell asleep. But this man, Eutyches, how many words had he been listening to? What was it that caused this young man to fall asleep when hearing the teaching of the apostles? To me, this is an image that I want to invite us to of this this picture of what happens when doubt goes from being passive or goes from being active to being passive. One falls asleep. Eutyches has fallen asleep, even at hearing what I imagine to be some really, really good preaching. Apathy has set in. Boredom has set in. Perhaps fatigue with that, yes. But what we have here is someone who has fallen asleep. Words that he was likely seeking to figure out, what is this faith all about what am I supposed to do with my life does this guy have any answers for me and what it's done has put him to sleep perhaps you are one that goes into church or comes here tonight and in one way or another are falling asleep what we have is an image of somebody who has gone to church And passed out. And fallen out a window. And yes, the story ends well. It moves us towards waking up. It's a great image to show us the downside of falling asleep and falling. But it also gives us great hope. That even in doubt gone bad, life can follow that. It is that image I want us to have in our mind as we continue with this first profile. Acknowledging the limitation of more words and another sermon that might put somebody to sleep. Let's continue on with this profile that we have of this man uh, in John 5. A man that we meet that has been sitting aside this pool for several years. This is a story placed among uh, many others where we see Jesus going about healing people. But we encounter a man that has lost all motivation. Let me read this to you from John 5, beginning at the second verse. It says, Now there in Jerusalem near the Sheepgate Pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades, here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes in ahead of me. Jesus said to him, get up, pick your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. 
the day on which this took place with the Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow that told you to pick it up and walk? You see, this man at the pool of Bethesda had been conditioned by previous circumstances where for 38 years he had been able to predict this outcome. That it was believed that that angels would come and stir up the water in this pool. And if you were the first one to get into this pool, then you could be healed of whatever it was that, that you were suffering with as you stood by this pool in Jerusalem called Bethesda. But he had been conditioned by his circumstances to say, you know what, I already know what the answer to this situation is going to be. I know how the story ends. And friends, this is a picture of doubt gone bad because it leads to apathy. Apathy is when you lose all energy or motivation to pursue that which is before you. This man, and and apathy happens when you feel you know the outcome to the situation before you. For this man, when Jesus asks him, do you want to be well? There is this, almost this this sense, uh, when I read this, I thought of one of my favorite movies. Ferris, Bueller Day, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Perhaps some of you have seen it where uh, Ed Rooney is determined to catch Ferris. And so he goes to his house and he, and he dings the doorbell. And this, this guy at the pool of Bethesda gives something similar to Ferris's uh, doorbell recording. You know, where Ed Rooney dings it on and, and Ferris goes, uh, the recording goes, who is it? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm afraid that in my weakened condition, I may take a nasty spill down the stairs and subject myself to further school absences. Pause. You can reach my parents at their places of business. Uh, Have a nice day. Of course, Ed Rooney dings it again and gets the same answer. The man in the pool of Bethesda is like, has this, this cue like the recording on Ferris. Only instead of of, of asking, who is it? He He simply replies by saying, I'm sorry. Every time the water bubbles up, somebody gets in in front of me. I already know the conclusion to the story. I know how this story ends, so I don't even try. One of the ways that apathy sets in for me is in home improvement projects. Uh, typically, because I have had many situations where my intentions are so good, I can do electrical work on my own. I can hang drywall, and I, my guess is I could hang drywall straight. No. Anytime I do electrical work, I'm convinced the house is going to burn down about a week later. And anytime I've tried to hang drywall, the, the room ends up looking like it's going to be pretty crooked. Thus, I know the answer anytime I start in on a home, home improvement project. And the answer is going to be, I'm going to need to call a friend like, like Voy or somebody that has uh, skills in this to come and fix it. Or even worse, I'm going to need to spend money for somebody to come and undo the mess that I've made. So at this point, I don't even try to engage home improvement projects, much to the chagrin of my uber-motivated wife who loves home improvement projects. My apathy is that I already know how it's going to end. 
I'm going to make a mess of the project that is in my house. And thus, I don't even like to start them anymore. The man at the pool of Bethesda has been there for 38 years. Friends, doubt goes bad when apathy sets in, when we know the conclusion and we cease to move beyond it. That's the warning of what happens when we become passive in engaging our doubts instead of active. Apathy robs us of motivation and energy, and it damages our capacity to persevere in circumstances that are not favorable. Our second profile is this, and it centers around this this idea that apathy can lead us to cynicism. Now, cynicism happens when we uh, already know an unfavorable conclusion to a circumstance. But cynicism happens when we try to move away from taking any ownership of those circumstances whatsoever. You uh, likely have heard about a man named Pontius Pilate, who was uh, the governor of the region where Jesus lived. And ultimately, he was the one that was empowered with the decision on, on what do we do with Jesus as the Jewish officials had brought Jesus uh, to him. And so I, wanna, I want to uh, read through a profile of cynicism. Doubt gone bad in cynicism uh, with this person that we know as Pontius Pilate. And what I want you to notice as I read this are the questions that Pilate asks. Does he know the answers? Is he trying to take ownership or avoid ownership? The text from Matthew 27, 11 reads this. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now, it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At the time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was uh, Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of envy that they handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with this innocent man. For I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and have Jesus Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you, asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they all shouted louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water, washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood. It is your responsibility. Cynicism moves Pilate to avoid responsibility at all costs. What it ultimately does is make Pilate indecisive. What shall I do then with this one called the king of the Jews? He is looking for any way possible 
to avoid any sort of responsibility in dealing with this uprising. Ultimately, he wants to have no responsibility of this innocent man's blood on his hand, though it was within Pilate's realm of power to be able to say, no, you can't crucify this man. He wanted no responsibility because he was, he was cynical. He was torn. He was of two minds. He was listening to the Jewish officials. He was listening to the crowd. Certainly in his job, he had pressures on him from his bosses in Rome. Cynicism leads us to a place where we are trying to avoid responsibility at all costs. And what we, somebody that is cynical is often heard saying, I told you so. I told you it would end that way. One of the most annoying things that, that I encounter in one of the most joyful and, and life-giving experiences that I have in my fall, as I've shared with you before, is going to Husky football games. But, and perhaps you guys have experienced this too, um, I've got these strong seats. They're right across from the band, lower level. They're, they're great, right behind, right behind the, the visitor's bench. But there is this dude that sits behind me that endlessly, I mean, he calls himself a Husky fan, but all he does is complain. And all he does is, oh, he's going to throw an interception. Oh, we're going to cough it up. Well, you know, he is the most cynical fan I've ever heard, and it drives me bananas. And I, and I get it. I mean, what he's trying to do is avoid, is avoid being let down. He doesn't want to do, do anything that, where he might actually have to invest emotionally or, or physically. Or, I mean, he just is sitting there protecting his, his heart and not trying to take any responsibility for what might happen there. Even though people like me and, and, and my buddy Mike Gaffney are sitting there pouring our hearts and souls into this. And this guy, all he does is play the cynic right behind us. It's profoundly irritating. He takes no responsibility for the fact that we're all in this together. Now, that's a, that's a trite example, but cynicism leads us to a place where we fail to own up. Doubt goes, doubt goes bad when we start wondering about ourselves instead of wondering about God. We get cynical when we start asking the question, if I say this, if I believe this, if I demonstrate this, then what will other people think of me? Pilate was worried and cynical about how am I going to be viewed if I waffle on it? What's going to happen? When we begin to wonder more about ourselves but not own up to it, cynicism has set in. Third profile. We meet a man named Saul of Tarsus. Doubt goes bad and rebellion happens. Rebellion happens when one decides that the struggle of relationship is not worth it and turns the other way. In relationship we struggle. Rebellion happens when somebody says, I'm, I'm out. It's when one not only doesn't believe, but they don't want to believe. That's rebellion. There's a, there's a lot of popular, uh, 
literature out there written by atheists right now. Perhaps you've heard of some of these people, Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens, where it is, it is cloaked in this, uh, we are objective. Uh, we've done our homework. We've, we've, uh, we've studied this thoroughly, and to some degree they have. But lest you think that what they are communicating is objective, what you need to hear is that these are people that don't believe and they don't want to believe. That's rebellion. When the struggle is no longer worth it and you don't even want to submit or believe. For me, the place that I have seen rebellion in my life, uh, primarily in my own family, is divorce. Divorce has a long and storied history in, in my family. My folks were divorced when I was a very young age. Both my parents are on uh, their third marriage. And, and throughout my extended family, there's been a lot of divorce. And divorce is this, this picture of rebellion because what has happened is these two people that had originally made a covenant to each other are, are saying, nope, it's not going to work. And they're, and they're saying, it's not that I don't want to work on it or have the energy. It's that I don't even believe it can work. So I'm out. That's how I've experienced divorce as a type of rebellion. And so the profile that I want to show you is of a man who rebelled against these new Christians, who stood aside while one apostle, a guy named Stephen, was stoned to death, and this guy stood aside and approved of it. He was a notorious killer. And we hear more about him in Acts chapter 9. It says that uh, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to, the synagogue, letters to synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that is, any who were Christians, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. You see, this man known as Saul had too much to lose. For him, there was too too much of the power structure, too much of of his identity that would be challenged if he were to go to the way. So his only option was to rebel. To not only be indifferent to this, but to say, there's no way. I'm going to snuff this out. And so he begins to persecute Christians. He begins uh, to to kill uh, Christians. For Saul of Tarsus, his confidence is being eroded as he's seeing what's going on here. This was an interference to who he understood his place to be. Simply, in Saul's assessment, it would have cost him too much to even consider what this might be to be a part of the way. Doubt goes bad when we determine that we do not want to change. And in fact, in not wanting to change, we rebel against, uh, we rebel against what it is that we might change to. You see, God in who he is, is in, in his spirit at work within us, can lead us to a type of transformation. 
And when we resist that, that becomes a form of rebellion. Rebellion happens when we resist the ways God might redeem and transform us. Doubt goes bad when it becomes passive. Passive acceptance of circumstances instead of active engagement of those things that are troubling us. The good news is this. The story doesn't end with Saul just going on to continue to persecute Christians. Rather, God is capable of trumping and redeeming the most toxic rebellion. And we get to see this in the life of Saul. I want to continue this story as I wrap things up tonight. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He replied, now get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Then the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him into Damascus, and for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias! Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him and restore his sight. Lord, Ananias responded, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went into the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me to you that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up, was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Friends, the person that we have just heard about, as some of you are likely aware, Saul becomes the one that we know as Paul. That even in his rebellion, God said, I can trump that. I can beat that. Your rebellion is not too much for me to handle. But there was a lot of damage done in the process. God can get our attention even in rebellion. And I share that story tonight because this one known as Saul of Tarsus becomes who we know is the Apostle Paul. And he is the one that likely shared his story to this man, Eutyches, that we hear about in chapter 20, that then falls asleep. 
This young man likely looking for more words, for ways to bring meaning and, and structure and joy to his life, to answer his questions, to hear another sermon that might help him make sense of things. And yet, Eutyches is going to sleep when he's likely hearing from a man who is sharing about, I was on a road, got knocked off my horse, lost my sight, somebody came and prayed for me and commissioned even me to go preach the gospel. This is an amazing story. And yet, when doubt goes bad, when apathy and cynicism and rebellion set in, the image is that we, in one way or another, fall asleep. So the question becomes, how do we move past this image? How for those of us that come here week in and week out, which is great, not fall asleep in our faith by hearing more and more words, even in our desire to get it right. So many of the doubts that we heard about last week were frankly less doubts about who God is and what God is up to and God's character. But the biggest single doubt that I read on this board and and through prayer requests was, am I doing the will of God? This incredible question of, am I doing the right thing? This, this whole question where we come back onto ourselves and wondering about ourselves is what can ultimately lull us into this type of spiritual and emotional sleep. So if the goal is to avoid having this doubt go bad, what do I do? What do we do? Remember, first it is about having an active faith, not a passive faith. Three things. Instead of getting more and more words, why don't we go and do something? Maybe we need to stop listening to more and more sermons and participate in something like the Advent Conspiracy. There's, there's countless number of, of opportunities to go and serve and participate in this great message of the salvation of God through Jesus Christ that Paul is talking to Ananias about. And honestly, we have the capacity for every single person in this room to go and serve someplace this Christmas, this quarter, this spring, or this summer. We can do that. And if you find yourself in a place tonight where you're going, why can't I just grow in my faith? And what do I need to do to to feel like I'm experiencing God again and and to, to continue growing? Go and do something. And dare I say, quit listening to more and more sermons. Don't make your faith one dimensional. And not that I'm trying to rail against good sermons. I like good sermons. I want to preach good sermons. And I want you to hear good ones every week here and at whatever church you may go to. But do more than that. Go and do something. Get up and go. To take ownership. Let's move beyond cynicism. And acknowledge our struggles and failures. Let's make a decision to follow Jesus and stick to it. Let's take ownership. There's times when I come in and people are uber cynical about the church. And to some degree, I don't blame them. And all I can do is say, yes, I know, I've grown with you, I'm a part of that church that is hypocritical and sinful, and I can't explain it, 
but I'm part of it. And I, and I'm sorry, but let's take ownership and do something that's part of the game. Take ownership of your faith. If you have questions that are keeping you from going in faith, take ownership of that and actively engage them. Don't passively accept a circumstance because the, a theme that is being woven throughout this whole series that we've been looking on in faith and doubt is that when our faith is rooted in good circumstances, ultimately it will crumble. We need to take ownership and take ownership beyond the circumstances. See, finally, we need to keep our eyes open. Jesus tells us that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It happens in really small ways. And to see it, we have to be sharp. Keep our eyes open and pay attention. This image of Jesus in the garden telling the disciples, stay awake and pray. Stay awake. It's the, it's the, the prophetic message of the Old Testament that you hear Isaiah say over and over. Awake, awake. Let us keep our eyes looking for a Jesus that says, I am with you and I will never leave you or forsake you. That is the promise of the gospel. It is the salvation of God revealed in Jesus Christ. So friends, active engagement of doubt, active engagement of our faith, owning it, making it ours. That's what your college experience as a Christian can be all about. Owning your faith. It's not just your parents' faith. It's not just the faith of the church that you grew up in. It's owning it. And this is the season for you to do just that. And the opportunities for you to engage. To stand up. Pick up your mat. And walk. Let us not fall asleep. But actively engage our doubts. That we might grow. In faith and love, commitment and risk in relationship to Jesus. Let us pray. Lord, we are grateful that you and your spirit trump all our doubts. Uh, That, Lord, in the ways that we might be apathetic, the ways that we might be cynical, Lord, even in the ways that we might rebel, you invite us back time and time again. Uh, Lord, we are grateful uh, that uh, you are with us and that the promise is that you will never leave uh, or forsake us.